So when I spoke to you last January, um, economic activity was contracting quite sharply. And I thought it was a reasonable uh, expectation uh, to see growth in the second half of last year. And uh, it, despite that, though, that there was substantial uncertainty about how the contraction would ultimately uh, play out. In particular, there was a possibility, I thought, a year ago of a deeper contraction uh, that I thought I couldn't dismiss. In the end, however, uh, we did see positive momentum on um, the second half of last year. Third quarter growth in real GDP uh, exceeded 2%. I think it was about 2 and a quarter of a percent. And most economists expect to see a determination made that the recession officially ended about the middle of last year. Well, that's undoubtedly good news. The level of economic activity uh, is still far below where it was a couple of years ago. And unemployment is quite high. Many households and firms are making do with far less than they once did. Moreover, there are substantial economic challenges for the U.S. economy uh, looking ahead. Having said that, though, I do believe that uh, growth will continue this year uh, and that incomes will generally improve. In my remarks today, I'm going to focus on the national economy and the outlook for growth and inflation in the year ahead and beyond. And I'll touch on some of the important economic challenges I think we face. Before I begin, I have to do the usual thing by noting you, uh, for you that I speak only for myself and not necessarily for my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. So when I spoke uh, last year, I went out back and read my remarks, um, I spent a fair amount of time on a list of factors that appeared to have contributed to the decade-long boom in housing and housing finance that preceded and appeared to have precipitated the recession uh, that we saw and the associated financial market turmoil. The list included historically strong growth in productivity, which passed through to growth in real income and the demand for housing, low long-term real interest rates, technologically driven improvement in retail credit delivery, which lowered borrowing spreads and expanded access to credit for Amer many Americans, and a regulatory regime which may not have adequately contained the moral hazard associated with the perception in the marketplace that many large financial institutions, including especially the government-sponsored housing finance inter intermediaries, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were too big to fail. Now, I don't intend to discuss these at length. I've done a lot of that over the last year or so. Um, but I, I mention them as a warning against monocausal explanations for what we've just been through. The recession that just ended ranks as one of the deepest on record and was led, as I uh, suggested, by the plunge in housing construction that followed the boom. During the boom, housing prices almost tripled. But by, 2000 and evidence, uh, by 2005, evidence was, was emerging that the run-up had gone too far. Vacancy rates began to rise in late 2005 and hit record highs. Measures of home construction and sales activity began to fall precipitously. Home prices also began to decline. That reduced equity uh, values and household wealth, and it led to uh, rising defaults and foreclosures. The layoffs in residential construction dampened growth in overall household income and thus dampened growth in overall household consumption spending. That caused the rest of the economy to slow, and then the expansion officially ended in December 2007, and we turned into contraction mode. 
The recession that followed, as I said, was longer and deeper than any we've experienced since the 1930s. I could cite a slew of dismal statistics, but I'll confine myself to one in particular. The number of people employed has fallen by 7.2 million uh, through November since it peaked at the end of 2007. A tremendous number. As I mentioned earlier, the contraction in overall economic activity appears to have ended last summer. The data we've received since then indicate that activity has generally improved. I'll discuss first the sectors whose improvement is most evident. I'll start here with housing. Several indicators of sales and construction activity hit low points early last year and have risen modestly since then. For instance, single-family housing starts have increased 35% and new home sales have increased by 8%. And there are signs that home prices have bottomed out as well. One widely followed index of existing home prices nationwide rose a seasonally adjusted 3.9% from May through October of last year. Even with these welcome gains, however, new housing construction remains well below the pace required to accommodate population and income growth on a sustained basis. But that's to be expected, given what, with hindsight, appears to have been substantial overinvestment in housing during the boom. As a result, while I expect uh, residential investment, and many others as well, uh, do as well, uh, will no longer be a drag on GDP growth um, going forward, there, a lengthy period of adjustment may be necessary before any growth in residential investment is warranted for our economy. Consumer purchases of cars and trucks also began to fall off in 2007 and then fell very sharply in 2008. Sales hit a low point last February and then increased very gradually before the Cash for Clunkers program uh, boosted sales over last summer. The subsequent payback afterwards uh, was smaller than many analysts had forecasted, however, and sales have improved steadily in the last four months, uh, an encouraging sign. Granted, sales of autos are still well below the long-run trend that would be needed to track uh, the stock of vehicles growing in line with population. But just as with housing, uh, it looks like autos will no longer be a drag on GDP growth going forward and should make positive contributions as well, uh, again, in welcome contrast to the last two years. Apart from autos, real consumer spending, uh, which fell slightly during the recession, also resumed an upward path uh, last year. In the third quarter, consumer spending, excluding cars and trucks again, increased at a 1.6% annual rate, and many economists are expecting a somewhat larger advance to be reported in the fourth quarter. Let me be clear here, though. Consumers are by no means in an exuberant mood. The rise in the savings rate uh, to over 4% from 2% last uh, August likely reflects a combination of apprehension about future income prospects and a desire to rebuild wealth that was depleted uh, by the broad erosion in financial asset and home prices. But the recovery in equity prices and the stabilization in home values that we've seen has no doubt contributed to the modest recent upturn in consumer spending. The ongoing stabilization in labor market conditions, which I'll say more about in a minute, also appears to have played a role by giving consumers a bit more confidence in their income prospects going forward. Business spending on new equipment and software, uh, which fell a sharp 21.2%. Uh, 21% during this recession, has also reversed course and registered positive gains. 
Firmness in business spending on capital goods may seem incongruous in light of the low levels of measured capacity utilization in many industries, but excess capacity in some sectors does not preclude the emergence of profitable opportunities to deploy new equipment and software elsewhere to reduce costs and drive increases uh, in productivity and improvements in processes and services. Uh, so I expect business investment spending to continue on a gradual upward trend. In addition to these favorable domestic developments, there's been a worldwide rebound in economic activity, which is boosting demand in our export industry. A year ago, real exports were falling at nearly a 30% annual rate. In the third quarter, however, real exports increased at almost a 25% annual rate. So toting up all these favorable demand side developments, recent estimates suggest that real GDP grew at roughly three and a half to three and three quarters percent annual rate in the second half of last year, uh, its most rapid growth in several years. Part of that growth reflected an inventory swing. Earlier in the year, last year, uh, inventory liquidation kept uh, production, that is GDP, below final sales. Uh, and the shift towards inventory accumulation provides a temporary boost to GDP growth. It'll help uh, in the fourth quarter and the first quarter as well. That addition to production will necessitate the hiring of new workers, which will add to household incomes. Consumers, having deferred many purchases during the recession, will respond to growing incomes with higher spending. This is the typical pattern in the period immediately following a recession. We don't see any reason for this, this time to be different. Indeed, signs of improvement in the supply side of the economy are evident. Industrial production increased significantly since the low point in June of 2009. While the midsummer rebound in auto production was significant and did contribute to this rebound, even without autos, industrial production has increased by a solid 2.6% over that span. Moreover, uh, the survey-based uh, indexes that we have, uh, the ones published by the Institute for Supply Management, have risen substantially last year, and that indicates that growth in manufacturing activity is spread broadly across different industries. The new orders components of those indexes have registered even more impressive growth over that period and is now at the highest level since December 2004. These particular indexes have a 60-year track record of giving highly reliable signals on recession and recovery, and again, we have no reason to suspect a break from form here. One key element supporting the recovery is the significant improvement in financial conditions that's occurred uh, this past year. Corporate borrowing costs have declined considerably as interest rates on commercial paper and corporate bonds are now much lower than they were last year. Many major banks have sold stocks successfully and now have the capital to support uh, new lending, even if conditions turn out worse than expected. Now, granted, we do hear anecdotes frequently about business borrowers being turned down for credit or having long-standing credit lines uh, withdrawn. It's important to recognize, however, that many borrowers will naturally face tougher credit terms in a soft economy because their revenue prospects are likely to be more uncertain than they otherwise would be. Moreover, the proper benchmark is the ability of the banking system as a whole to supply an appropriate quantity of credit, not any given individual bank, since any one individual bank could be shrinking their balance sheet while others are expanding. I'm not aware myself of any serious evidence that the banking industry as a whole is inefficiently or inappropriately constraining 
the availability of credit. So I've been focusing so far on the areas of the economy where improvement is evident. There are other areas where we face major economic challenges, however. Commercial real estate is top of mind here. Construction is falling, vacancy rates are rising, falling property prices are eroding owners' equity positions. Holders of commercial mortgage-backed securities have already taken sizable losses, with more on the horizon as numerous projects are scheduled for refinancing in the months ahead. And some community banks who have lent heavily to commercial real estate developers are now facing rising delinquency and losses. No one expects a quick reversal of these negative trends. And as a result, business investment in non-residential structures, that's what we call uh, the commercial construction component of uh, GDP, uh, business investment in non-residential structures is likely to be a sizable drag on U.S. growth in the near term. More worrisome is the labor market. We just received the December employment report this morning. The number of uh, people employed has fallen in 23 out of the last 24 months. The unemployment rate has more than doubled to a 10.0% rate in December. Wages are under pressure. Average hourly earnings in December were up only 2.2% over the previous December, about half the rate of increase we were seeing in, in 2007. Going forward, as overall economic activity continues to improve, employment will return to an upward trajectory. Indeed, we've seen a few initial signs of improving labor demand, such as an increase in the average work week since October. And indeed, the rate at which employment is falling has declined significantly uh, since early last year. Even the most optimistic forecasters, though, do not expect a rapid improvement in national labor market conditions. And we're going to need to carefully monitor employment and earnings for an extended uh, period of time. So let me put the whole picture together for you. I think the most likely outcome is that the economy will grow at a reasonable pace next year. Um, housing should recover uh, from a depressed state, should be stable through next year. Consumers should gradually expand spending. Business investment should, on equipment and software should make something of a comeback. And these components of demand should overcome a continuing drag from commercial construction. Now, I'm often asked in the last couple of months how economists can be so upbeat in the light of the obvious economic challenges we face, such as the severe weakness in the jobs market, the low level of residential construction activity, and the declining level of commercial construction. My, my answer begins with the observation that there are obvious, serious problems coming out of every recession. And we have a historical record of 31 recessions to prove it. Despite the obvious problems at the end of each recession, we always recover, and quite often more rapidly than many expect. And if you drill down into the details of those 31 recoveries, some common elements are apparent. I already touched on one, the end of the inventory cycle, which is boosting production right now. More important, in my view, is the behavior of individual consumers during the recession. While many workers lose their jobs, obviously, during a downturn and suffer greatly because of it, a much greater number of workers remain employed. Many of them will take the precaution of cutting back on spending and deferring major purchases, particularly automobiles, big electronic products, just in case something happens to their own job. As the recovery begins to take hold, though, these workers gradually become more confident about their future job and income prospects. They begin to spend a larger fraction of their incomes. Similarly, many firms 
will find it prudent to reduce capital spending during the recession. But as demand re- revives, these same firms will see an increasingly an increasing number of viable investment prop, um, opportunities for themselves. In short, deferred spending during recessions creates pent-up demand by consumers and businesses that will bolster spending once the recession begins. And I see no reason for this cycle to be different. Now, there are always risks uh, to an outlook. The future is always uncertain. The labor market could conceivably recover more slowly than many expect, which would restrain consumer spending and dampen growth. But household incomes and household confidence could consumably rebound more vigorously than many expect, in which case consumer, expe- uh, consumer spending could expand more briskly. These are standard risks on either side of the outlook coming out of a, a recession. It's also me- worth mentioning a risk that, to me, seems particularly prominent in this recovery, and it's been mentioned earlier here today. Firms and individuals are facing major uncertainties surrounding federal policies on trade, the environment, health care, financial services, and taxing. For a business, con- considering a commitment to a new capital spending project or new hiring, it can be difficult to estimate after-tax yields for some new endeavor in an environment that is so rich for, with proposals for higher taxes and new regulations. This uncertainty, which I sense has not been so pronounced in previous recoveries, could well bias firms in this recovery towards deferring new investment and hiring commitments, and that could lead to a lower productivity growth and hence uh, a slower recovery. Turning now to the outlook for inflation and monetary policy, a year ago uh, when I was here, many economists expected the exceptionally low level of economic activity to depress inflation, perhaps even push it below zero. Things turned out differently. Inflation expectations, which embody projections about the future conduct of monetary policy, have remained fairly stable according to the best available measures. This has an anchoring effect on core inflation, which averaged 1.5% last year. In my view, that's a very good performance, and I hope it continues. Fortunately, the risk of a pronounced reduction in inflation seems to have diminished substantially at this point. During the recovery period ahead, we may face an increasing risk of inflation drifting upward, which has sometimes occurred during past recoveries. While that risk appears to be minimal at this point, we will have to be careful as the recovery unfolds to keep inflation and inflation expectations from drifting around. What we will need to be careful about at the Federal Reserve is when and how to withdraw the considerable monetary policy stimulus now in place. This requires care during every recovery, of course, but this time the Fed will have two monetary policy instruments to grapple with, not just one. The Fed traditionally has targeted the overnight federal funds rate, which required appropriately adjusting the supply of our monetary liabilities, currency plus bank reserves, in order to intersect demand at the federal funds target rate. So by targeting the federal funds rate, we gave up control of monetary liabilities. We had to vary them to hit the target. Now, varying the Fed funds rate affects a broad range of other market interest rates and thereby influences growth and inflation, and that's how we, that's how we influence economic outcomes. Since October of 2008, as the bankers in the room are very aware, we have had the authority, the reserve banks, uh, to pay explicit interest on reserve balances that banks hold with their reserve banks. 
This gives us the ability to vary independently the amount of our monetary liabilities and a critical overnight interest rate. Essentially, we have so much reserves in the system that the interest rates are driven down to this peg, this overnight, this interest rate we pay on overnight balances, and that becomes a substitute for the federal funds target rate. So when it comes time to withdrawing monetary stimulus, the Federal Reserve will be able to raise interest rate on reserves and thereby influence the constellation of interest rates in the economy, or to drain reserves, which will also, independently of the interest rate on reserves, have its own effect on the constellation of interest rates of the economy, or we could do both. Now, to, despite these added challenges and added complexities in this, in this recovery, in this new regime, the core objective of monetary policy remains the same, and that's price stability. As always, this will require keeping inflation expectations anchored. Since those expectations reflect views about the future conduct of monetary policy, as I said, we will need to carefully choose when and how rapidly to remove monetary policy stimulus so that inflation expectations don't erode. This is the same difficult task we face in every recession, though. For my part, I will be looking at the time at which economic growth is strong enough and well enough established uh, for a clue about rates. When the economic outlook for the coming year appears to be brighter than the year just ended, our economy does face several significant challenges over the longer term. And I'm going to include, conclude by mentioning two of them uh, very briefly. The first challenge uh, that we face over the long run that I want to highlight for you is the path of future federal budget deficits that are implied by current and planned fiscal policies. Now, it should be self-evident that any government's debt cannot grow indefinitely at a rate much faster than the economy itself grows, as which is implied by current law, it turns out. Ultimately, something has got to change. Either taxes are raised, spending is reduced, or, heaven forbid, the real value of debt is eroded through inflation. That latter alternative is one I'll vigorously oppose, by the way. While economists can debate the effects of particular changes in spending and tax policy, at some point, a government debt that grows relative to GDP, so that the ratio of debt to GDP is rising, at some point, that debt will compete with private borrowing, lead to higher interest rates, slower capital accumulation, and therefore, slower improvement in our country's standards of living. And when shortfalls get large enough, these effects would be exacerbated if there were ambiguity about how that fiscal imbalance was going to be resolved. So failure to establish credible plans for bringing our fiscal position back into balance could dampen economic growth in the years ahead. Another challenge uh, that I'm particularly aware of arises in the area of financial regulatory reform. In the wake of the crisis we have just been through, it makes eminent sense to re-examine our approach to financial regulation. I've argued elsewhere that the most important step to ensuring long-run financial stability is to establish clear and credible limits to the federal financial safety net, which has grown considerably as a result of the response to this crisis. I believe that the crisis itself was in no small measure the result of us not having clear limits on the extent of government support. Leverage and excessive risk-taking were encouraged by the belief that large parts of the financial system were implicitly protected, and those beliefs have been ratified in the event. 
if we retain a stance of official ambiguity as to when such protection will or will not be forthcoming in the future, which institutions will benefit from support and which of their liabilities would benefit from such support? If we do that, then I suspect our susceptibility to disruptive financial crises will continue to grow and with each crisis, the safety net will become ever more expansive. A more expansive safety net will inevitably require more stringent regulation. But regulatory systems are necessarily limited in their capacity to completely offset the deleterious incentive effects of the safety net. So just like ambiguity about the path of future fiscal policies, continued ambiguity about the financial safety net could limit our capacity for growth in the long run in the years ahead.